listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 93. It is the year-end special, and we are bringing you a list of our top labor stories of the year. We're including the good, the bad, and the hopeful. But first, the news. There's been an unprecedented crackdown on some of China's most effective worker organizations known as worker centers. Seven worker activists have been detained and held virtually incommunicado in detention facilities in Fosan and Guangzhou. Uh, the Guangzhou Seven, so-called, uh, have included some of the most prominent labor activists in the country, working for a network of independent NGOs that have uh, made some pretty significant gains for uh, the independent labor movement across China, but especially in uh, southern urban manufacturing hubs uh, like Guangzhou. According to Amnesty International, the activists are reportedly being detained on grounds of endangering national security, though they were, according to earlier reports, held on lesser charges of disrupting social order and the ever-ubiquitous charge of embezzlement, for whatever reason. Attorneys have been restricted from communicating with them, uh, as have family members of the detainees. They have since, however, demanded clarification on the charges, and Amnesty reports that that if they are formally charged with national security endangerment, that could lead to a sentence of up to 15 years in prison. So this crackdown seems unusually harsh, uh, given that these NGOs, if anything, are known for helping to resolve labor disputes peacefully before they escalate into, say, a full-blown strike or a violent protest. So um, they've actually become known for channeling some of the unrest in China's rank and file towards sort of legalistic means, for instance, arbitration or just general collective bargaining between workers and management. One labor activist commented on a Hong Kong political website that the raids might have been well-planned from a higher level of government, and it reflected some anxiety about um, efforts that have been made recently to ease collective bargaining rights for workers, uh, because in the face of a national economic slump, the government is actually worried that if they don't suppress the legitimate aspirations of workers right now, that uh, it will lead to unrest down the line. Of course, that effort to clamp down on this protest may meet with a global backlash. And already you've seen an international solidarity campaign emerge online. There have been petitions from not only Amnesty International, but international labor groups, uh, as well as labor scholars from overseas. And the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions has been at the forefront of uh, keeping an eye on this, uh, campaigning internationally, and letting other unions know that uh, there is uh, a group of worker activists that are being persecuted in China right now, and uh, they're quite separate from the sort of official government-run union that purports to be the actual representative of Chinese workers. Uh, In reality, you're seeing these independent groups mushroom because there is a huge vacuum of leadership and effective organizing in the rank and file. So now uh, it remains to be seen what will happen to these detainees, but the broader issue at hand here is that uh, this crackdown could have a chilling effect on other workers centers and on civil society more broadly. Uh, We've seen detentions of journalists and similar detentions of uh, activist lawyers. So uh, now it seems that they're uh, turning to workers as kind of the next uh, battlefront. And it's really incumbent upon uh, international labor unions to show China that it is no longer able to get away with suppressing labor activism without drawing broad global condemnation. Yes, I am obsessed with port truck drivers and their ongoing struggles to end their misclassification as independent contractors. Long-time listeners know this. If this is your first time tuning in, the truck drivers who haul freight for the nation's biggest importers at the ports, for companies like Walmart, Costco, Microsoft, and more, were deregulated back some 35 years ago, turning them from unionized employees into so-called independent contractors who have to pay for their own trucks and fees, still required to sign a contract with a company that effectively controls all the conditions of their labor. In other words, long before Uber, the port truckers were struggling with the system, and these days they're winning. 
This past week, drivers for Pacific 9 Transportation, who have been on strike since July, won a ruling from California's labor commissioner that they were, in fact, employees and that the company owed them nearly $6.9 million collectively in stolen wages. The 38 drivers are owed for expenses they've paid out, back wages, unlawful deductions from their paychecks, meal and rest periods, and waiting time if they are no longer employed by the company. This decision comes on the heels of a March 2014 settlement with the National Labor Relations Board Region 21, where the company agreed to recognize the workers as employees with the right to unionize under the NLRA. The company later violated the settlement and it was withdrawn. The workers, supported by the Teamsters Union, had got, went on strike this summer and are continuing to fight. This is, of course, just one company. The industry is still as a whole dependent on the independent contractor model where the workers have, in fact, almost no independence. This is just a reminder of how long and painful these fights can be, but it is nice, at least, that the legal battles are going the workers' way, even if they are still sort of having to be one, one company at a time. One of the most critical and yet most invisible labor struggles of the past few years has been waged by sex workers, who often toil in quasi-legal conditions and face enormous challenges not only in securing basic rights in the job, but in protecting their safety in an industry that is largely outside the scope of labor regulations and frequently targeted by the criminal justice system. A new report published by the Red Umbrella Project, the National Center for Transgender Equality, and the Best Practices Policy Project has focused on the many challenges facing transgender sex workers who, in addition to working under oppressive conditions, are often subject to dehumanizing and brutal treatment at the hands of law enforcement and marginalized by discrimination in virtually every sector of life. So the report analyzes recent survey data showing that trans people with sex trade experience are over 12 times more likely to be living with HIV than trans people who have never been sex workers and 25 times more likely to be HIV positive than the general population of the United States. So amidst that troubling public health context, the report shows that policies that have criminalized sex work over the years have actually increased their social marginalization, driven them further from uh, the social service infrastructure and generally exacerbated barriers to health care. For transgender people already burdened by the social stigma of sex work as well as just transgender identity in general, critics argue that the pervasive profiling by law enforcement which includes profiling women who are found to be simply carrying condoms on the street, has further threatened safety and access to health care. Another twist uh, in this tragedy is that uh, there are new innovations in preventive medication regimes known as PrEP, and these offer hope for dramatically reducing HIV infection risk, but due to the endemic poverty in the trans sex worker population, as well as the uh, barriers to health care, um, many advocates are afraid that the combination of uh, draconian law enforcement measures and poverty will put the drug out of reach of those who most need it. And so the public health focus on um, medical access currently kind of overlooks the special obstacles that sex workers may face in obtaining the drug due to these law enforcement consequences. And overall, you know, it's not just healthcare barriers or wage theft and poverty, um, though there are plenty of all of those things. Um, there's also just the uh, racial element that goes into the combination of the policing of trans sex workers' bodies, especially for trans women of color. And uh, alongside the criminalization of sex work, you often see uh, sex workers being subjected to behavioral reform schemes that uh, do very little to actually address their real economic needs or address systematic abuse and harassment and exploitation, but they often sort of reflect uh, an imposed morality coming from uh, higher up that has very little to do with the day-to-day -day circumstances that they face every day. Uh, recent survey data shows that um, in the workforce generally, nearly 7 in 10 transgender adults who have reported involvement in sex work uh, recall experiencing an adverse job outcome in the traditional workforce, such as uh, being denied a job or a promotion or getting fired because of their gender identity or expression. And that's much higher than the already alarming rate of about 45% for um, 
non-sex workers in that survey. So for trans sex workers in particular, addressing both their health needs as well as their basic social equity needs, um, the report recommends dismantling the outmoded policies criminalizing HIV infection. And this includes uh, reforming the sex offender registration systems and the criminal penalties that have targeted people who engage in sex work while HIV positive. And in addition, they call for an end to the immigration policies that have criminalized migrants generally and left uh, transgender people at a special disadvantage when they end up uh, detained in federal custody. As we've discussed before and belabored, the debate over whether to criminalize sex work often eclipses the voices of sex workers themselves, whose rights as well as uh, individual choices uh, need to be respected as they seek work with dignity. In the last week, the progressive public relations and media company Fitzgibbon Media has collapsed, done in by repeated allegations of sexual harassment and sexual assault against its founder, Trevor Fitzgibbon. After several staffers at the firm shared their stories of harassment and assault, they raised complaints, and instead of addressing those complaints, Fitzgibbon closed the company down. In the wake of this, there's been a bit of a discussion about the working conditions at supposedly progressive workplaces. Fitzgibbon Media represented clients that included NARAL Pro-Choice America, yet its founder was accused of repeatedly harassing his female employees. And as many people who've worked at supposedly progressive companies can attest to, the situation is far from rare. Serial harassers often use their progressive cred as cover for their actions. They're feminists. How could what they're doing be sexual harassment? It's not that sexual harassment is rampant within progressive workplaces so much as it's rampant everywhere. As Bryce Covert wrote at The Nation, a third of women reported in a recent study that they had been sexually harassed at work. It is common in restaurants as well as PR firms and in call centers, as I discussed recently. And most women simply deal with it rather than come forward. An individual lawsuit is expensive and you risk being painted as a troublemaker. You could lose your job and worry that no one else will want to hire you for fear of getting sued themselves. In a tight-knit community like the progressive political scene, accusing someone who is popular and powerful might result in the accuser getting ostracized. What's heartening about the Fitzgibbon situation is that the employees took collective action once they realized they were not alone and sexual harassment, particularly from practiced serial abusers, often happens in private, so the employee in question can't get anyone to back her up, and it is her word against the harassers. And she, of course, doesn't know that it's happening to many other people, perhaps. So rather than one-by-one file suit, the workers at Fitzgibbon took action together and are now talking about relaunching their own company without their former boss and presumably with some of their former progressive clients. What's less heartening about this whole thing is how many victims are still out there afraid to talk about what's happened to them for fear of making the wrong enemy. So as the year ends, we are going to take some time here to talk about our best stories of the year, the worst stories of the year, and the things that we're hopeful for for 2016. So to start off with, I really wanted to return to the potential end of two-tier wage structures at the big automakers, because it's a story that has something of some of everything we love around here. Um, It is about deeply engaged union workers challenging a major corporation and changing one of the labor movement's most controversial concessions in recent years. Because of a lot of reasons, I think we don't talk that often about the old big industrial unions on this show, but the story of the workers within the United Auto Workers at Detroit's Chrysler plants who united to demand an end to two-tier wage structure, yeah, there were were a few things that made me happier about the labor movement than that this year. Um, The auto worker was kind of the epitome of the old American industrial worker, the middle-class union manufacturing laborer who could buy a house and a car and send their kid to a good school. And the slipping of the auto worker from that position has been kind of the story of deindustrialization and the hollowing out of the middle class and this inequality we talk about all the time. So the two-tier system was agreed to in the middle of economic crisis at a time when the auto companies were getting bailed out and workers faced a choice between making big concessions or going under. And it created one layer of workers who would start and eventually top out at a lower wage structure than the people who had been with the company for years doing the same job. 
So um, as labor relations expert Gary Chasen explained on uh, Belabored episode 88, it puts all of the burden of a wage cut on the backs of the workers who aren't working there yet. Um, the assumption from the companies is that workers with seniority will act to preserve their wages and benefits and leave newer workers out to dry, that, in short, two-tier would kill solidarity, but instead what we saw this year was that solidarity may have killed two-tier. When the first tentative contract came down, the rank-and-file UAW members organized on social media and on the shop floor. They had marches, picket lines to vote down the contract in what our guest Alex Wassel called a ratification smackdown. Um, because it didn't do enough to end the two-tier wage structure. So they sent leadership back to bargain a better contract. Workers like Wassel stood up for those who had not been hired yet and those who had been hired on the bottom tier and demanded an end to inequality at Chrysler. Um, it was an excellent stand for workers to take, and I am hoping for much more, and that the contracts that were negotiated at the big three this year really do spell the beginning of the end of two-tier. Yeah, and um, I think it's also worth noting that it's kind of a nice um, sort of uh, bookend to a lot of the uh, horrors that came out of the 2007-2008 recession, which I think uh, you're addressing in in your upcoming book, actually. Um, Why, yes, I am. (laughs) Yes. And it's an interesting case of of sort of newer workers and incumbent workers um, coming together in solidarity, um, which I think has been, you know, one of the larger sort of underreported stories to come out of uh, the Great Recession. Uh, Like we've seen a lot of mobilization of groups of workers that we haven't really heard from a lot in the labor movement. Um, But yet, you know, you also see some of these sort of incumbent um, labor organizations kind of coming around to the realization that, you know, uh, the future of the labor movement is really going to be about trying to bridge the gap between some of these you know, the longstanding uh, union structures that um, that have sort of been the bulwark of the American middle class in this new real era of precarity that we're facing. Uh, and I guess that's kind of a segue to my other story uh, for this category, which is uh, the fight for 15. And it's actually covering kind of one of the I guess maybe the other the other pole of of the workforce in the sense that these are the workers who are representing some of the lowest wage, most precarious, most marginalized sectors that have historically not had um, any opportunity to unionize. And now they're finally getting organized with the support of you know, leading unions like SEIU, you've seen the movement kind of take off and and kind of fan out in a bunch of different directions. And the movement, I guess, this year has been punctuated by a number of different wins on kind of the uh, the legislative and the regulatory front. So I flagged the uh, new $15 minimum wage in L.A. and uh, the fast food worker wage board decision in New York um, as two of the kind of key victories. And, um, you know, one of them in New York was just a sector-based initiative, which uh, targeted tens of thousands of fast food workers who are earning sub $15 wages right now, and it would raise their base wage to $15. Um, So that would cover, you know, just a a fraction of New York's overall workforce, but it would be a meaningful symbolic win for the fast food movement because one, New York has been sort of ground zero of that movement because it began with fast food workers in New York City. And also it's a symbolic win for workers in the food industry who have been kind of among the, uh, the leading forces that are leading some of the street protests and the mass mobilizations um, in a variety of cities right now. With LA, it was across the board wage hike expected to cover up to 800,000 people um, and uh, be a significant boost to the local economy. And that victory was no doubt inspired by uh, the fast food worker protests, but ended up being taken up by the legislature as kind of a a long overdue recognition on the part of lawmakers that um, the kinds of wage inequality that uh, you see in big cities like New York and L.A. are simply unsustainable. Um, The wage hike is also notable because it's indexed to inflation, which kind of insulates it from the political whims in the coming years. Um, That said, both of these wage hikes are going to be phased in over time. So by the time the $15 wage actually kicks in, uh, you know, around 2020 or so, um, it's going to be worth a lot less than it would be uh, currently. But it's a significant 
significant kind of notch in the belt of the movement. And uh, it's been followed up by some pretty impressive wage hikes in different cities, not to the $15 level, but, you know, for instance, Sacramento went to $12.50. Washington State went to $12. Palo Alto, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, they increased their wages to $11 an hour. Those are pretty significant boosts considering that just a few years ago when the fight for 15 movement was just getting started, there was uh, no state with a higher minimum wage than about $9 an hour. So uh, those are pretty big incremental steps. Um, On the other hand, I did also want to point out that uh, they're both uh, flawed and incomplete measures in the sense that, um, you know, in L.A., many of the workers earning less than $15 an hour, um, many of them are undocumented. Many of them are working sort of... um, in uh, in extremely marginalized sectors, so they may be pretty much outside of the scope of enforcement, um, which is why there needs to be a lot more attention paid to whether or not employers are actually held accountable for paying this minimum wage. In New York, the Century Foundation did an analysis of the actual number of workers who would be affected by it, uh, and uh, it came out to you know less than five percent of the total sub fifteen dollar an hour uh, workforce across the state. So, um, you know that. That, that just shows you how much work, more work there is left to be done. Um, this is all, uh, you know, coming on the heels of research from the National Employment Law Project that says that um, over four in ten workers nationwide earn less than fifteen dollars an hour. And uh, you know, going forward, the other half of the fifteen dollar fight for fifteen movement, the other half of their demand is is for a union, and we've seen um, much less action on that front. So while there have been some victories uh, with the at the level of the National Labor Relations Board and in litigation. Um, the fact is that with the franchise scheme in place, um, a lot of fast food workers are nowhere near forming a union or any kind of viable collective bargaining scheme across the sector. And uh, as the fight for 15 prevails, I mean, that really needs to be where hopefully next year's attention will turn, uh, which is not just getting higher wages, but really building worker power. Yeah, and I, because I'm here in New York and because I... Longtime listeners know how I feel about Governor Andrew Cuomo. It's worth noting that, like, Andrew Cuomo deciding to convene a wage board and pushing for $15 an hour for fast food workers and for all workers, and also his recent move to raise public sector workers' wages. All of these are things that he, like, staunchly refused to do about a year ago. So, you know, you can not just say that you have to elect progressives, but actually, you know, a a successful movement can push people who are not on your side to do the right thing. So, and from there, now we go to the bad, which is, uh, well, I'm going to try to not depress you all too much, because the story that I think, you know, for a lot of people who watch labor are in the labor movement or members of unions, particularly public sector unions. The scary thing right now is the uh, the Supreme Court agreeing to hear the Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association case. If the Friedrichs case goes badly for labor, for the CTA, it could finish the job that the Harris v. Quinn case, which we talked about repeatedly on this podcast back in 2014, did not do. Um, It could make the entire public sector into a so-called right-to-work workplace, eliminating the agency fees that workers who do not want to join the union pay in order to cover the costs of the bargaining that the union is legally required to do on their behalf. So right-to-work is the endlessly annoying framework because it's like the shorthand that everybody knows, except like A, most people don't really know what that means. They think it makes unions illegal, which it doesn't. Um, and B, it is the most Orwellian name you can possibly use, right? It has nothing to do with your right to work. But anyway, the Friedrichs case was filed by 10 California teachers. Friedrichs is one of those teachers. And it is backed by the, quote, Center for Individual Rights, a supposedly libertarian group that has also spent a bunch of money opposing affirmative action. This case has basically been fast-tracked through the local courts in an admission that it goes nowhere without overturning the existing Supreme Court precedent in um, the Abood case, which was like 40-ish years ago. This case argues that compelling teachers to pay agency fees to a union that they may politically disagree with is compelled political speech and that it violates the First Amendment, even though technically the agency fees they pay don't go towards political activity. They just are supposed to cover the cost of bargaining, um, which is 
the majority of what unions spend money on. Members who actually sign up as members of the union are agreeing to pay dues that do include that political activity um, that go over and above the agency fee that everyone has to pay. In the Harris v. Quinn case, which was about home care workers, the court issued a narrowly tailored ruling that only affected home care workers, and Justice Alito, who wrote that opinion, argued that home care workers were a different kind of worker, that they weren't really public sector workers, and maybe they weren't really workers at all, and thus they shouldn't have to pay agency fees or be members of unions. So in Harris v. Quinn, they, the court could technically have overturned the Abood case, which is what the Friedrichs case is attempting to do, and it did not do it. And so the real question that we all had was, did they want to do it and not actually have the votes because it's the same members of the court then that there are now, or did they in fact decide to do a narrowly tailored case and wait for the next one to come? So now we get to stake all of our hopes on whether Justice Scalia hates free riders more than he hates labor unions. Um, the public sector is, of course, the stronghold of power for the labor movement, as the big, powerful industrial unions like the UAW faded. Union density in the public sector is somewhere above 30%, while it's less than 7 in the private sector. So eliminating those agency fees while requiring those unions still to bargain for people who don't pay in would possibly really decimate their funding and be a huge blow to the main center of power the labor movement still has. But because I'm a terminal optimist, I should add here that at least some unions have really taken this as a moment to engage in really deep member organizing, to encourage people to sign up, to become active members, to feel like the union is more than just people who they pay to negotiate a contract for them every few years. It's still really hard to argue, as some people have tried, that this could possibly be a good thing for labor, but it has certainly lit a fire under some unions and hopefully will inspire some creative work. Who says I'm all doom and gloom? Yes. Uh, thanks for leaving us the bad news on an optimistic note. But uh, I try. Yeah. <laughs> when you said, uh, the, was it the Center for Individual Rights? Yes. Is that what it's called? Yes, uh, yes that's yes. what it's called. It's so brilliant how in both the Harris v. Quinn case and uh, and in this case, uh, as we've talked about before, the issue of free speech and uh, the First Amendment has been twisted so perniciously to attack organized labor. And I guess that's just sort of one of the continual sort of sub-themes of uh, the libertarian attacks on organized labor. It's sort of like they can't convince enough people that unions are just inherently evil in and of themselves, so they have to come up with a constitutional free speech argument to battle them, uh, you know, in, in the courts. And I guess it's it's just, it, it's interesting with all of the other debates around free speech that are erupting uh, in the education sector, just... Um, how uh, this notion of uh, of the First Amendment um, can be used to elide some of these really insidious attacks on you know a, an organization that really uh, provides some semblance of economic democracy. So um, you know, uh, and of course you know both the teachers and. Uh, the home care workers in Harris v. Quinn, um, these are both really gendered sectors. You know, these are uh, precarious public sector unions that have been embattled in recent years. And so, you know, it's just kind of telling to see who really pays for a lot of these free speech battles. So. Right. And uh, anyway. Freedom. So, uh, <laughs> what? I said anyway, Freedom. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, speaking of freedom, um, over on the other side of the globe, my bad news was uh, Asian supply chain issues. So, you know, from Bangladesh to China, we've seen these dramatic tragedies that have erupted with industrial accidents and um, all sorts of other abuses against workers. And so I guess the bad news writ large is that these um, abuses continue and uh, the exploitation continues to be propelled by Western multinational companies, which, of course, are getting a dramatic boost with the uh, Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership that we've discussed before for in the show. So that's that's kind of the big bad news. I, I did want to point out, though, that um, there are sort of nuances in a lot of these labor struggles that offer some modicum of hope. So, for instance, you've seen the Bangladesh Accord coming into play in their garment sector, which is one of the key export industries and which really fuels um, a lot of the, uh, the fast fashion industries in the West. And uh, that accord uh, was rolled out primarily to uh, promote workplace safety and uh, prevent 
horrific tragedies like the Rana Plaza building collapse that we saw a couple of years ago. But this has actually become kind of an interesting fulcrum for labor organizing because as uh, the uh, brands and the unions that are responsible for helping to implement the Bangladesh Accord have moved forward, they've realized that a lot of the safety issues come down to the lack of worker power in the workplace. And so what you see is that workers can't advocate for safety in their factory or for, you know, safe fire exits or to limit exposures to toxic job hazards because they're constantly abused by their bosses. Uh, They can't form a union without facing vicious retaliation. And often um, the political leaders in their communities are working hand in hand with business interests to uh, crush organized labor and to crush any form of civil society activism, really. So I guess maybe the the silver lining in some of these workplace tragedies is that when we see these horrors unfold, we really see the most extreme, most egregious consequences of a lack of protections for labor organizing. And, you know, to its credit, the Bangladesh Accord does offer a key role to labor unions and to workers as primary stakeholders in the safety monitoring process and offers them a framework for challenging employers. The key, though, is to make sure that these can be safely implemented in factories without the workers getting crushed from the outset by bosses who are just going to fire everyone who tries to, or or just shut down a factory altogether. And of course, this is not helped by the fact that Walmart doesn't even really participate in the accord or any real viable safety scheme except for their own proprietary sort of ethical sourcing codes that um, are just basically enforced by their own hired guns. And this is also really speaking to the need for consumer consciousness and consumer activism so that people in the West can put pressure on brands here to actually kind of try to do the right thing because ultimately it does come down to these multinationals that really do set the price structure and in turn um, set the wage structure that trickles down all the way to the supplier factories in places like Bangladesh. Same thing with, you know, labor trafficking in the seafood industry in Southeast Asia. Same thing with um, electronics manufacturing in China. And I did want to end with China because in a way that is distinct from places like Bangladesh, um, the workers in China have reached a a point of, I guess you could call it some baseline of economic security where they actually do feel emboldened to do things like form independent worker organizations, to stage mass strikes. And you've seen strikes uh, sometimes with as many as tens of thousands of workers over the past few months rising up and, and not just calling for higher wages, but actually demanding things like social security payments and health care from employers and from the government. And that's building pressure on the government, which, of course, is leading to a whole other kettle of fish as far as uh, the complicated politics of independent labor organizing in China, which I addressed in the news section earlier. But suffice it to say that labor strikes are on the rise, primarily as a result of factory closures, mergers, relocations, and a lot of the things that workers here in the U.S. are concerned about. So there's room here for a global solidarity, and there's also room for global vigilance on both the labor and the consumer side, because, you know, as with the fight for 15, you know, you can have all the great laws you want on the books, but none of that will mean anything to the workers in the rank and file unless they actually have a real organization that will support them as they challenge their bosses. Yeah. See, we're not all doom and gloom. Even our our downside stories were pretty optimistic. But, you know, just to to end on an up note anyway, we're going to go from there to um, what we are hopeful about for next year. Um, So as I wrote this week, the Chicago Teachers Union just voted to authorize by 88% of the membership to authorize what would be its second strike since the caucus of rank-and-file educators took over union leadership and built just the kind of union I was talking about with the Friedrichs case, a deeply engaged, fighting social justice union that is capable of winning big battles against, well, very special opponents. What could have been one of the worst moments of last year was that Mayor Rahm Emanuel was re-elected in Chicago after being forced to a runoff by CTU-backed candidate Chewy Garcia. Now it has been discovered that during that very election, Emanuel and other higher-ups in his administration 
seem to have been engaged in a really big cover-up of the shooting by Chicago police of Laquan McDonald, who's a 17-year-old black man. Um, Emmanuel's approval rating is now currently hovering somewhere around 18%. He's facing calls for his resignation. His police commissioner has already fallen on his sword. I think today people delivered um, Rahm a bunch of, like, I think 250,000 petition signatures calling for him to resign. Um, And basically the last thing he wants is a fight with a big union, particularly this union, which has been from the beginning decrying the racism and inequality in Rahm Emanuel's Chicago and has been working closely with several of the groups that have been holding almost daily protests about the shooting of Laquan McDonald, other kinds of violence against black and brown people in Chicago. Um, and on our very first episode of Belabored, Karen Lewis, the president of the CTU, talked about the way that Rob Emanuel and his cronies in the education reform, quote unquote, movement, Uh, try to position themselves as the ones who truly, really, they're the ones who care about black and brown children, it is kind of hard for Rom to pretend that that's the case when he's also involved in covering up the death of a black Chicago public school student. As Sarah Chambers, who is a Chicago teacher and member of CTU, told me, um, Laquan was a student on the south side of Chicago, and it is the job of the teachers to stand up for him and for all of their students. Um, Since the last CTU strike, teachers' unions have been on fire, with reform caucuses taking over in several cities, strikes popping up all over the place, several good contracts challenging testing being won by threatening a strike. Um, Another thing that I could have used as a best story of this year was a Seattle teachers' strike, which won um, racial justice caucuses in about half of Seattle's public schools. We talked about that in a couple of episodes this year. And federal law has even just been changed regarding testing and teacher evaluations. Um, We could go on and on and on and on and on about that, um, and I probably will in the future. But as I look forward to next year, I think I can safely say that Friedrichs or no Friedrichs, teachers' unions are on a roll. And if the CTU does, in fact, strike again, they could be poised for an even bigger win against a hated neoliberal and currently very, very weakened mayor. Right. Um, No wonder they're targeting them at the Supreme Court. Teachers unions are kicking ass around the country. Um, Anyway, uh, so my hopeful story goes back to the fight for 15 for another emerging battleground in uh, child care and early childhood education workers. Um, So we know that the uh, campaign started a couple years ago in kind of the quintessential low-wage industry, fast food restaurants, um, and now it's broadened to a number of different sectors, uh, most notably um, a number of uh, sectors in the uh, in the education field, and early childhood education has been getting a lot of attention lately um, on the sort of uh, uh, on the parental side because more parents are increasingly concerned and, and uh, demanding of uh, universal pre-K, comprehensive of daycare, um, more generous uh, uh, subsidies for uh, child care, for working parents, etc. And so I think the next Fight for 15 battle is going to really be on the other side of that uh, early childhood uh, child care education picture, um, which is going to be the workers who are really doing the hard work of teaching preschool, of uh, providing essential daycare services while parents are going out looking for jobs and working. Um, And the sad thing is that as much attention has been uh, put on providing uh, high-quality child care and high-quality preschool, um, the typical hourly wages of most uh, early childhood workers in the country is about $10 or $11. And according to the Economic Policy Institute, child care workers are earning about 40% less the nationwide median wage. And about one in seven childcare workers lives below the official poverty line. So, um, in many regions, that means that basically childcare workers cannot afford childcare for their own children, which, um, you know, uh, kind of complicates things uh, when you realize that these people need to be at work educating, um, you know, your children. Um, so, uh, given the totally unsustainable. Um, structure of this industry, uh, it's clear that, uh, you know, they, uh, they have a major stake in joining the Fight for 15, which they've done 
in in uh, in large numbers uh, over the past year. Um, and it's not just inadequate wages. Um, this is a sector that has had, uh, you know, compared to other educators, such as uh, K through 12 teachers, um, they've had relatively weak union representation. Um, only a small fraction of this workforce has employer-provided health insurance. Um, the job conditions are often so stressful and arduous that you're seeing turnover rates as high as 30 percent, um, which is extremely disruptive uh, to children's education. If you want to talk about the, the actual quality of the education that, that results from this kind of scheme, and, um, you know, teachers are often left in a position where they're not seen as really serious teachers compared to workers uh, in K-12 schools. So because they're working for private providers a lot of the time or, um, you know, community-based nonprofits, um, they're left out of some of these uh, broader labor protections and, uh, and uh, union structures that have benefited other uh, education sector workers. Um, they, and so in order to, say, advance and keep up with state requirements, these teachers need to go back to school. They need to get their bachelor's degrees, right? But there has been um, precious little investment in actually um, building a career ladder for these people, which of course goes back to uh, the, the quality of education that, um, that, these, that, that children are getting these days. So um, it's really a matter of lifting up the entire low-wage workforce, and that includes the parents that need these services for their children, um, as well as the teachers who are also of the same socioeconomic strata, um, who yes, need to provide uh, wages and uh, decent uh, wages for their families, but they also need to, you know, also ensure that th their kids are educated properly too. Um, and uh, one study by uh, UC Berkeley researchers actually pointed out that uh, in the sector compared to other, um, other types of teachers, there are more teachers of color. They're generally of um, uh, lower income backgrounds. And so lifting up this section of the teaching workforce is really about lifting up um, all education workers and ensuring that those most in need of wage equity are finally getting some of it on both the consumer side as well as on the on the labor side. Um, and right now, we've seen a lot of attention in places like New York City um, and also on the federal level to improve funding for uh, child care and early childhood education. Um, we've seen less action in terms of providing decent wages for these workers, and unless they're included going forward in some of these reforms, then, um, you know, children are ultimately going to suffer and families are going to suffer because of it. So um, my hope um, is that we're seeing a lot more mobilization coming from child care workers themselves, and, um, and they are going to be making a very powerful case going forward as to why they, as members of the community and as low-wage workers, uh, deserve a lot more. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. And this is the special year-end edition of ARG. So we bring you an ARG to sort of top off 2015. So my pick was Impatient for Justice by Chris Webb in Jacobin. And it is about the South African student movement, very much like the student movement that helped bring down apartheid, it has global resonance. I thought it was particularly interesting to look at this piece in light of all that's gone on on campuses and in the streets this past year with Black Lives Matter, addressing issues of economic injustice as well as racial injustice in tandem. The South African student movement is pretty remarkable not only for its uh, bold challenge to South Africa's post-apartheid political establishment, but also in the way it really reflects these global struggles that have been led by youth that speak to not only basic issues impacting their lives directly, but also to a vision for social transformation that really cuts across all sectors of society. Um, the campus organizing in South Africa in recent months parallels in many ways the Black Lives Matter stu student movements on campus, and Chris Webb outlines the movement known as Fees Must Fall as a highlight showing 
how it has bridged movements for low-wage students as well as movements for workers on their campuses who are also dealing with extreme precarity and poverty. So the Fees Must Fall movement, he writes, has been about more than student demands for lower tuition. At the universities of Cape Town, Stellenbosch, uh, Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, and the Western Cape, students organized around the working conditions and wages of outsourced campus workers, which is a growing problem born of universities' desire to cut costs. Sound familiar? Um, he goes on to write, outsourced campus workers struggle to survive on poverty wages. So um, you can see from this that there's a very similar program going on in terms of outsourcing and driving down labor standards on U.S. campuses. So both in South Africa and the U.S., movements to organize faculty, graduate workers, campus workers, and students have encouraged kind of broad-based economic justice campaign all levels of the university system. Uh, and to understand the plight of South Africa's youth is to really try to understand the tragic betrayal of the hopes that accompanied the fall of a Apartheid. On a global level, you could draw analogies with the growing unrest at campuses across the U.S., where the politics of race have turned into increasingly tense battles over affirmative action and uh, countering both uh, de jure and de facto racial discrimination and segregation, and an underlying effort to make higher education less insular and more accessible and more attuned to the social struggles around race and class that affect the communities that surround these universities, uh, from which many students of color come, but have historically been shut out of the so-called ivory tower. The Fees Must Fall movement originated uh, with a campaign at the University of Cape Town to dismantle a monument to the famous figurehead of apartheid, Cecil Rhodes. And like the campaigns to take down the Confederate flag from public monuments in the U.S., the protest against the symbol of Rhodes in South Africa resonated with deeper tensions uh, surrounding a history of racial subjugation and an ongoing tension around what many black students see as a systemic failure to grapple with the consequences of a history of institutionalized racism. Webb writes, quote, the connection between the two movements goes beyond mere frustration and disruptive protest tactics. They both speak to the lived realities of race and class in post-apartheid South Africa. Race still structures exclusion from educational institutions and erects barriers to housing, jobs, and services. To harken back to earlier debates around race and class in South Africa, race is often the modality through which class is lived. And Webb concludes, quote, It is essential that youthful anger be taken seriously rather than dismissed or treated in a functionalist manner. What's lacking in South Africa is not critical consciousness or anger. That exists in abundance. What is needed is a political direction for this anger that connects the struggle against tuition fees to everyday struggles for survival occurring in the country's most impoverished communities. I think the same lesson could be uh, imported to the U.S. where you see uprisings for Black Lives Matter across the country against a backdrop of uh, movements against uh, student debt and high tuition fees, as well as efforts to organize faculty and uh, graduate workers at Columbia, University of Chicago, and a number of other universities, private universities around the country. For students and scholars of higher education, they're both political and economic actors, and they're often also on the front lines of these struggles around economic and racial disenfranchisement. And now a lot of these activists are finding their stride in their push for a more just campus because um, by achieving equity in the places where they learn and teach, they're also striving towards a more just society around the world. It is the end of the year, and we have been discussing the ups and downs for the labor movement. One of the bright spots this year, despite the devastating stories that come with it, has been the continued growth and power of the movement for black lives, challenging a racist criminal justice system, police brutality, and linking those issues to the broader fight for an end to inequality and racism everywhere. The story that made me go arg this week by friend of the show Astra Taylor at The New Yorker and supported by the most excellent folks at the Economic Hardship Reporting Project is also a story that brings all those issues together and reminds us of all the work left to be done. Titled From Jail to Farm to Table, it is the story of former Black Panther leader Elaine Brown and a new worker cooperative that she's helped to launch in Oakland that exclusively employs formerly incarcerated people. 
Brown is critical of the ban the box movement, which we've talked about on this podcast several times, not because the goal of getting formerly incarcerated people closer to getting work is a bad one, but because the removal of a box on an employment application doesn't go nearly far enough. But if employers won't hire someone who's spent time in prison, the idea behind the company Oakland in the World Enterprises is that formerly incarcerated people can become their own boss. They currently run an urban farm that sells fresh, healthy food to local restaurants, and their long-term plan includes a co-op grocery store, restaurant, fitness center, and tech design firm, all worker-owned and all by former prisoners. The project also serves as a path towards development without displacement for the people who have lived in the rapidly gentrifying Bay Area for decades and draws on a long history of cooperatives within the Black community and the Black Panthers' own survival programs, from free breakfast to medical care to an elementary school. Taylor writes, quote, With ribs, greens, and a martini before her, Brown wove the cooperative's aims into a larger intellectual perspective. Most activism today, she said, was missing a correct analysis, an understanding of how capitalist dynamics shape our current condition. The guiding motto of our government, Brown quipped, is, We care about you, but we won't care for you. If a person is poor or in prison, it is unfortunate, but ultimately their fault, this ideology insists, and the state doesn't owe them anything. It feigns empathy while willfully ignoring the broader circumstances that keep people impoverished and often cause individuals to turn to crime in the first place. And it is these circumstances that Brown wants to see radically changed. Yet she was aware of how hard that process would be. Quote, there is no way to piecemeal, fix up, or reform any of these issues we all like to look at in isolation, she said. Brown's final goal, I think, is a good place to leave off for this year. She said, we want a world where everyone can go to a nice place with beautiful tables and nice glassware. We're not trying to bring people down, we're trying to bring them up, but we're not trying to bring them up on the backs of someone else. And with that, happy holidays, and thank you as always for listening to us and for sharing your stories. If you're a teacher or home care or child care worker, if you faced sexual harassment or spent time in prison, if you have a story of hope or of anger to share, you can always reach us at hashtag belabored or belabored at descentmagazine.org, and we will be back with you in 2016. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.